welcome to Perspectives from the Field. My name is Keith Hodson, Assistant Professor of Music Education at the University of the Arts in Philadelphia, and also Director of Education for Zezewitz Music in Reading, Pennsylvania. This podcast is supported and distributed by Zezewitz Music as part of its commitment to music education and to the professional development and support of all music educators. My special guest today is Dr. Scott Watson from the Parkland School District in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Um, and our topic is today's entrepreneurial music educator, professional opportunities beyond the classroom. And I'm really excited to talk to Scott about this because he embodies this. <laughs> and, and we uh, are looking forward to talking more about this. So welcome, Scott. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me and uh, looking forward to the conversation, Keith. Great. Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself, um, about your teaching, your background? Sure, sure. So, I mean, you mentioned my, my primary uh, job is the, as a music teacher in the Parkland School District. I'm an elementary band uh, I came to the district as a high school band director, but I'm now I'm an elementary band director, uh, but I still teach elective music at the high school, things like AP music theory, music production. Um, and I coordinate our elementary band and orchestra program, which prior to the pandemic was almost 900 kids uh, in fourth and fifth grade that played a band or string instrument. Um, we're wow. building back, we're, we're about 700 now, so we're, we're on our way. Um, but, but that's my primary job. I do some adjunct teaching at some Philadelphia area universities, um, do some writing uh, as a composer and, um, and some clinicking and things like that. Well, that's great. Um, Scott, many of our listeners are, are aware that you, uh, in addition to being a highly successful and talented music educator, that you, you are quite a prolific composer. Um, could you share your story with us about why and how you found your creative outlet through composition? Sure. I mean, it depends on how granular you want to get about this, but I'll, I'll just give you the, the, the broad strokes is that I always um, um, was interested in writing. Even in high school, I'd write for our pep band in the stands and I'd, um, you know, do a little arranging um, at Westchester East High School um, in Westchester, Pennsylvania. And then um, when I went to college, I really, I mean, I went there as a trumpet major thinking that was going to be my big thrust. But by my junior year, I'd started um, writing for every single ensemble on campus at Westchester University. And, and thankfully, that was the university that was gracious enough that their um, conductors would perform student works. You know, a lot of places um, like, say, Temple, where I went for my master's degree and my doctorate in composition. And as, and as pleased as I am with that, that program, but, but a lot of those... Um, students there are there training to be orchestral players and the, the directors don't you know want to put core repertoire in front of them not some student work so in a sense i was really fortunate at westchester to get performed by a lot and um and so i went on so after getting my ma uh, bachelor's degree i decided to take a master's in composition um so for two years i did that then i decided i really needed to pay some bills i had gotten married in the meantime and and didn't want to be a deadbeat husband so i uh took a job at parkland thinking i'll do this maybe three years, pay back my student loans, and then go on for my doctorate. But it, three years is just long enough uh, to realize like how awesome a career um, education is, teaching kids and, and working with them. So um, it wasn't long before I realized that I'm always going to teach because I really like that. Um, and it didn't matter to me. I mean, I was a high school band director. Now I do mostly elementary, but do high school elective. Um, I work with um, university, uh, both undergraduates and grad students. Um, honestly, no matter what level I teach, I just like teaching. I like helping kids and, and working with them, seeing them grow and all that kind of stuff. So anyway, um, so I, I, when I got out of um, um, the master's degree and, and started at Parkland, I still had this bug that I wanted to do more writing. So after about five years, 
um, I went back to school for my DMA in composition. Uh, and that, I was like on the, the one or two courses a semester, you know, so it took me seven and a half years to get this DMA. Um, but during that time that I got it, um, I was I was writing a lot of concert art music, chamber music, hardly anything large, because that's what a lot of university um, you know writers do. They write um, a lot of what you can get performed. And um, then after I, you know, my wife had made all these sacrifices on weeknights and Saturday mornings while I was writing my music and, and finishing my program. Um, I did something sort of out of the box. I, I, I got the, the DMA and I said to Kim, my, my wife, um, you know what? Um, I've written for everybody for free, my friends, anybody who would perform a piece. Um, I'm going to see what happens if I only write if somebody pays me. <laughs> and what happened is um, I just went whoosh, big time towards the band world because it turned out that um, a band colleagues were the ones who were interested in actually paying me to write my music. Um, so I became, I think, largely what people think of as a band composer, although um, the pandemic has helped me sort of break out of that a little bit. But um, um, it just turned out that's where the work was. So, uh, you know, writing for my own ensembles, sharing those those pieces that I wrote for my own kids in Parkland, um, sharing them with um, other directors who'd say, hey, that was a cool piece. What What is that? Oh, that's a piece I wrote, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so, and then I don't, I don't know how much you want to go into it, but I ended up meeting John O'Reilly, had lunch with him. One thing led to another. He asked me to send him some some music and, and Alfred ended up being my publisher because John, John O'Reilly used to be the um, the editor at Alfred. Are you uh, exclusively published by Alfred, or do you have? No, you know it's interesting because after um, John left, Robert Sheldon took over, and Bob um, sort of accepted my pieces on a one one by one basis. Like so, so in a sense, I was a freelance writer for Alfred. Then, um, if they liked the piece, they take it. If they didn't, they reject it. Um, and so I had some other pieces. Um, I have pieces in uh, Hal Leonard's catalog, Wingert Jones, which is now Excelsior. Um, um, barn house. I mean, pretty much every publisher I've, I've got a, at least a couple of pieces there. Uh, Cause I would just send them to whoever would, you know, take them. But at one point I really have to thank Bob, Robert Sheldon. Um, I owe him a lot because, um, he basically called me up one day, um, and said, Hey, I'd like to get you in more band rooms. And, um, he, he was very kind and, and complimentary and said, I, I think you can, you can do more stuff. And um, so we're going to make you what, 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 what he called at the time an exclusive composer. But he said, that doesn't mean you can't be published by other people. But what it means is instead of you sending me pieces and me and having to wonder whether or not it's going to be published, um, I'm going to get, I'm going to hold, um, you know, three slots or four slots. It would depend on what year it was, but he said, I'm going to hold a number of slots in our catalog that I want you to fill. And you can write whatever you want, or you can write what I tell you. Like if I say we need a grade two, uh, or we need a um, holiday piece, you know, he, he kind of gave me assignments. Uh, and I did that for um, right up until he left. Now, Chris Bernatos is the editor and, and uh, it's a little bit different there, but I'm, I would still say Alfred is my, my primary publisher. Um, so I don't know if I, if I'd say exclusive composer anymore, but. Great. Well, thank you. That's great. Yeah. It gives us a good look into the, that business side of things, yeah. which I'm sure is interesting to a lot of people, um, especially who play your music. So I know you do a lot. Uh, besides the um, the composing and the education, uh, can you share some other pr uh, professional uh, aspects of your career outside the classroom? Well, I'll just say um, for our listeners, uh, you could just go to www.scottwatsonmusic.com and you can just see what I'm up to. There's an activities section. I'll, I'll just go over some of the things that I'm doing in the, um, like this school year. I did a couple honor bands uh, down in North Carolina. There was a middle school uh, uh, honor band I did um, in uh, Winston-Salem and I did a PMEA 7 
um, youth honor band. So I do some conducting, um, write some articles for Alfred. Alfred has a blog and they um, have uh, all of their author clinicians, um, you know, at, they ask them just to turn in articles, which they pay us for. But I mean, um, I'm happy for the work. Um, then um, I teach as an adjunct at um, Moravian University, right, right near my home. Um, I'm doing this semester advanced orchestration and I'm teaching composition lessons. Um, and, and I also teach another night at Cairn University, which is closer to Philadelphia. I teach a, a music technology class this semester. In the fall, it was a music ed technology class. Um, what else? Um, I'm writing music. Um, oh, you know, I will tell you something really cool. So Smart Music is launching a brand new program they're calling Smart Classes. And what it is, is if you're a Smart Music user, you can log in and actually take a class with a what they call a noted composer clinician. I don't know that I consider myself that, but that's they asked me to do their first smart class. So in February, they're going to launch the very first smart music smart class where I'll teach um, a three week class called um, three game changers for improving your ensemble sound. And, and in those three weeks, we do I, I assign different things. There's um, about five videos that I created for it where I'm teaching via video. And then there's um, lesson plans and assignments that link to smart music content. Um, the, the three pieces of music I'm featuring are Carol Britton Chambers, All for One, One for All, it's a neat march. Um, Robert Sheldon's arrangement of Shenandoah, beautiful grade two. And then my own Terracotta Warriors, which is a grade two piece. So um, like things like that, you know? <laughs> um, so I do clinics and I'll be at Iowa Bandmasters, PMEA. And I'm doing uh, your thing. I'm doing Zeswitz's. Uh, uh, um, um, what's the official name for yeah, that? The Con Selmer uh, Workshop, the right. instr instrumental workshop uh, at Central Bucks South High School on February fifth. Yeah. I was going to make that shameless plug at the end, but uh, there well, you go. Well, so while I'm making all my shameless plugs, uh, this summer I'm teaching a couple classes for UArts, um, and and. I love this one. I'm teaching a class called Composing and Arranging for School Bands. And I don't think I'm the best band composer necessarily, although I, I'm really proud of the work I do. Um, but I have to say, I've taught for 36 years and, and, I've, and believe it or not, I've actually taught a lot of university um, composition majors. I've done a lot of adjunct teaching. So I think I'm a good combination of, um, uh, we, the last time we had the class, I just had a great time uh, meeting these young composers. Uh, got a couple of them published. Um, I, I just, I, I, I love teaching this class. It's probably one of my favorite grad class to teach. So I'm doing that one and I'm doing another one called um, Rehearsal Strategies and Repertoire for Young Band. So those are my two summer classes with the UArts. Well, I can say that you, you get rave reviews from the from the adult uh, music educators who take your summer classes. Um, Thank you. Been saying that for years. Um, so let's turn to some other examples of our colleagues in the profession yeah. um, of of music education who have been extraordinarily successful in their entrepreneurial ventures. Right. Um, can you speak to some of those superstars? I am so looking forward to this. When, when we came up with this topic, um, I thought the coolest part about this uh, discussion is we get to plug and give props to so many people that uh, a lot of them we, we both know um, who are doing some really cool things, people I've learned a lot from and admire. Um, so I, I'll say some categories and then you can jump in on if, if you want to add to it. But so the first category I call um, PD, you know, professional development and training. And um, uh, Tom Rudolph would be, say, uh, somebody who's still out there. He's teaching some classes for Berkeley uh, online. But boy, was he a pioneer in this. Like, even though his day job was a middle school band director and general music teacher, he was like teaching like maybe seven 
grad classes every summer. He'd be all over the place every single weekend during the year. It seemed like he was at a different conference uh, with music technology, uh, founding the Time Organization, the Technology Institute for Music Educators. So um, like Tom would be like that model that I saw and I thought, man, that's, I'd like to kind of, I don't know if I want to be that busy, but but I, I kind of like the way he's um, able to, you know, express himself and, and what he's into outside of school. Um, and so he would be like the, you know, the, the heritage uh, legacy kind of person. Um, another person uh, or another couple of people I'd mentioned under that PD and teaching, uh, Missy Strong, who teaches general music in um, New Jersey, but she has become um, really high up in the, the fire robin um, first steps, um, that kind of training. Um, so she does classes all over the place, whether it's grad classes or workshops. And um, uh, she has a, uh, you know, one of those uh, websites where you can give her a cup of coffee, you know, and she puts also sorts of incentives. She's very entrepreneurial, just like we're talking about. Um, uh, and I know she's teaching for UArts. I think she did last year and she'll do it again this summer. Um, Amy Burns. Um, Amy Burns is sort of a link in the sense that she took some of my classes uh, before she was doing what she's doing now. And she took some of Tom Rudolph's classes and, um, and now she's much more talented than both, both of us. <laughs> she's, she's a, she's an elementary school, uh, general music teacher who also, um, uh, does a lot of training and every conference she'll, she'll be at TME, TMEA and you'll see on Twitter how people are like, Amy, we love you, you know, <laughs> because she's just so good at sharing how to use technology. And she's come up with a bunch of novel ways, whether it's her, her blog or whether it's, um, writing books, um, and getting published, um, uh, Oxford University Press has published both um, her books and my books, but- um, And also uh, from New Jersey, by the way. And from New Jersey, yeah, <laughs> New Jersey's really slamming it there. Um, so- right, Give us another big one from New Jersey. Uh, Jim Frankel. Yes, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> so um, he was a middle school band director, general music teacher. Um, so he's a great person to mention. And if, you know, for there are people out there who are thinking they'd like to do this kind of stuff or more of it, I remember him telling me one time that when he was still working as the middle school band director, but he was just about to make a leap into corporate America, um, he was like, again, he would be at all these conferences. And I said, Jim, how in the world can you get all this time off and everything? He said, Scott, I spent something like, and I don't, I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, but let's just say a large amount of money, like 10 grand or more, um, um, just funding himself to go present at all these conferences. Cause he said, I just want to get the experience. I want to get my name out there. Um, you know, and, and boy, did it pay off. He ended up getting offered a job as the executive uh, director for Korg. And then uh, he saw the handwriting on the wall when Korg was not going to be say as vital and viable, uh, ended up doing this amazing thing with, um, music sales group, uh, founding their digital learning division, uh, which is now music first. And then they're all over the place. And, and, um, and so Jim is just, I mean, talk about an entrepreneur or somebody who's sort of created his own opportunities. Um, mm -hmm. and he's another New Jersey guy. Um, I was going to mention uh, the recently uh, Dr. Laurie Schwartz Reichel uh, as somebody else like that, um, who had been a band director. Um, and what I really love about her story, too, is um, her and her husband or her family decided um, that she would be a stay at home mom, um, which is a real brave decision to make, you know, that that's, you know, to, to leave the, the work uh, force. And, and yet she's found a lot of ways. Um, and and I, just the short amount of time I've known her, I just can't believe all the um, you know, mentoring she does. She writes a ton of articles for NAFME and other people um, teaching for UArts um, and Vander Cook, I think she's, uh, she's all over the, anyway, um, and PD um, sessions. And it seems like she's broadening out beyond music. 
um, to be general education with uh, DEI and SEL and all the other uh, cool things that are out there. So, um, I, I mean, you could probably think of some other names. I don't know if I'm uh, hitting everybody. You and Jenny, you, you, Jenny Neff are all in that category of, but I was going to mention you also because you're, you're both um, doing a lot of directing and conducting and clinicking bands. And, you know, that would be, say, a whole other category. Great. Are there other, other um, besides the PD aspect of things, was there another category you were thinking? Oh, of? yeah. I mean, I got lots of categories. Oh, How much okay. do you, so. uh, let's share, yeah, let's share some of the other categories of uh, entrepreneurial ventures, directions that music right. educators might, might make. Well, so like um, there are people who say, I don't know if composer educator is the right thing, but like take Alex Shapiro. Uh, Alex is a wonderful composer in the Pacific Northwest who seems to be everywhere. Everybody loves to do her music. She's got this electroacoustical um, niche um, that she's just uh, killing, uh, but she's also on every board in the world. Like she'll be at an... Um, you know, one new music group after the other, she'll be there on their board. And I just remember one time I was at Midwest um, hanging out with her and I was, hey, what do you got coming up? Uh, and, you know, in the in the months ahead. And, and she must have mentioned like three different continents, you know, like she was going to be in Japan for this conference and then she was going to be in the Netherlands and then uh, New York City, which is across the country for her. And, it's you know, so that would be an example of somebody um, who's just doing all sorts of things. Uh, besides actually just writing music, she's she's um, got this whole cottage industry around her writing. And, um, um, you know, Robert W. Smith uh, has done that too, um, going from teaching to uh, being an editor, to being an owner operator, um, to, um, you know, there was a time where he, I, he was collaborating with um, Joe Pisano to develop software. I mean, it just seems like uh, now he's got his own publishing company that's, you know, distributed by others. But um, so him or the, or Tyler Grant, uh, this young um, composer that probably many of our um, listeners uh, know about Tyler's music, but uh, now he's a teacher too. Now he's actually working as a, as a band director and um, I think he self-publishes his um, upper level stuff, but but FJH publishes his. So he's sort of like a hybrid, right? He's doing the, like I'm more of a traditional music publisher thing. I don't have the time for all that self-publishing stuff, but but Tyler's doing kind of both of those. And um, locally, there's a composer that I mentioned to you. His name is Kyle Smith. He and I both went to uh, Temple for our doctorates uh, together and um, or he's a little older than me, but he used to be, the curator of the Fleischer collection at the Free Library of Pennsylvania, which houses all the music that say the Philadelphia Orchestra, if they're going to do an old, you know, arrangement that uh, Ormandy arranged or something, it'll be in the Fleischer collection. So, um, and anytime any copying had to do back in the day, he would copy it and, you know, ink on kind of like the old Broadway books. But but he also was very good with finale, and so he was copying. So he was a music copyist. Uh, he was working at the Fleischer Collection, but he writes some amazingly uh, beautiful uh, choral music, especially. He hosts a radio program in Philadelphia, a new music radio program. So um, he's he he's one of these people that's like um, before there was the term the gig economy, like where you don't have one full time job, you have many things that you cobble together that that makes you a really nice living uh, when they're all put together that's that's kyle you know kyle smith so um so we can name a lot of there's probably a lot of people whose names i haven't mentioned that deserve to be on that list so i an another local and zesowitz client um that that we talked about before um was uh steve selfridge uh, yes right. you want to talk about maybe some of the things that he's done because 
techni- technology wise, right? He's done a yeah. lot with YouTube. well, and with like the idea of I don't know if, if we're calling it blended learning anymore. Uh, since the pandemic, everybody's like doing that. But but Steve was one of those early pioneers of of using YouTube to to, to distribute uh, instruction, and he does live streams. Which that so I I have a YouTube channel. I put up videos, um, putting up videos that are just static that people watch. That's not technologically all that complicated, but doing live streams involves a lot more um, behind the scenes stuff. And he's been doing that for years uh, out of his home. And um, I drool when I see how many subscribers he has. He's in the hundreds of thousands of subscribers, uh, which for um, a a band director in Garnet Valley uh, in Delaware (laughs) County, Pennsylvania, that is amazing. That is a huge amount of subscribers. If anybody's out there tries to start a YouTube channel, um, my daughter, for instance, is doing a lot of videos for elementary, um, uh, general, and I think she does great jobs, Abby Watson's YouTube channel, but as awesome as her videos are, they're really good. Um, and lots of people from all over the world tell her how much, they love. I think she has something like, um, you know, 3000 subscribers. It's, it's really tough to get, to get those numbers up there. Steve has like 300,000 <laughs> subscribers. So he's killing it on, on YouTube. Um, and I've seen him present, you know, he's also a great teacher. Um, YouTube is just the, the most say visible side of Steve, but yeah. Um, yeah. So what do you think drives or draws or motivates music educators to explore so many other opportunities, um, in, in the music right. industry or outside the music industry? Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that because I don't think it's that they lack significance and and reward in their day jobs because like i said i i i think this is like a really high calling and and every one of the people i've mentioned um they 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 recognize that and they and they're people who usually teach for decades you know some of them you know like like jim ended up um probably after 15 years say uh, i think he was in it um uh, but it's still a fairly long time but um so i i think it's what it is is in in my opinion is that the way we're made is that we all have this um, like desire to be creative or I don't, maybe that's not the right word, but um, so my father, uh, my stepfather um, loves to do home repairs. You know, even though he would work um, a, a job all day and come home tired, next thing you know, he picks up a hammer or a saw and he's renovating a room. And he just found that to be very satisfying. And my wife loves to plan parties, even though it's a ton of work. And even though she stresses herself out, anytime she knows anybody in our family that's planning a party, she's like, let me, let me do it. Well, I'll do this Halloween thing. And she's like the Martha Stewart of party planning. So it just gives her satisfaction to do it. I think that's what it is for us is that when we're, when we're writing this music, I'd probably compose even if I didn't get paid for it. I just like to be creative and it's a way of expressing that side of me that um, you know, I get to do a little more fully than I do at school. So that's my opinion. No, I, I agree with you. And, and um, you know, I think music, music people are, we know they're a special breed, right? You mm-hmm. know, and they, they yeah. are very creative people. Um, I, I was also thinking about how, um, about the psychological needs that everybody just has of, uh-huh. of of autonomy and competence and relatedness, right? Those are the three basic psychological needs that everybody has. And when you think about doing something, you know, t- you might get all those three things, those needs met in your teaching job. Mm-hmm. Maybe some of them, maybe not all of them, but maybe that's another reason why your father yeah. uh, you know, came home and right. even went tired, turned to something because needed to do something that that he wanted to do yeah. that he felt that felt competent in you know and uh, i'm sure the relatedness is something that we do get in our jobs right with you know with teaching kids and our yeah. colleagues and we uh but uh 
I think that's actually a huge one in the sense that like earlier today, I was just talking with my daughter about um, how um, there's been a couple of times where I've had a chance to, to change different um, jobs, both within my district. Um, like um, I've been asked to, to hey, um, you make up the schedule for the teachers anyway. Could you put yourself at my building? That kind of thing. And or or even I've had a chance to, to, to leave the district. And um, I told her that to me, the greatest thing about our jobs is the relationships, whether it's with the students or with the coworkers. And um, so I, I honestly think that the same thing with writing music, even though writing is a, is a solitary uh, kind of yeah. thing, that's not what I like about writing music. It's like th this past weekend, I went out to breakfast with a client. I just like meeting people and hearing from them and just talking to people and going to conferences and going out for a cup of coffee or a drink and just finding out how they're doing and seeing what they're into and learning from them. And it's all that relational stuff, I think, that goes along with some of this entrepreneurial stuff. I honestly think that's the payoff. Yeah, it's the other side of, you know, you might compose in isolation, but then you're going to go guest conduct it. You're going to right. all, all kinds of people yeah, are meet a lot of people that are really cool. And they're going to give you feedback for, for years and years and years to come on your on your music and what right. you learn. So that's that's great. Now, speaking of creativity, every time I see one of the graphics that you do for uh, like, do, are you a Canva um, uh, Svengali or something? What, what do you use to make a I, it was Canva, but I, okay. I, just, I just started using Canva. Oh, I think you do some nice graphic work. <laughs> Very creative. Go or something, but uh, I, I enjoy it too. It's um, in what ways do you see your work outside the classroom having an impact on your students? Well, I do write a lot for my kids, and I think um, as as much as I admire so many great composer friends of mine, uh, nobody can write for my own students as good as me. And I, it's kind of a I know it seems kind of um, prideful, but um, I'm a, I, I think I, I'm self-aware of where I am in terms of my um, my creative output as a composer, but uh, I also know exactly you know what the what the the strengths and weaknesses. I can hide the warts and put the best foot forward of my own students. So like during the pandemic, especially when we had to sort of switch to flex stuff, I was writing a, a basically everything we did in our concerts. I was writing for my students and not using a whole lot of published. Now we're just starting to get back to that. And I really do want to get back to that because I want them to, to, to see all the great stuff that other people are writing. In fact, I got a grant uh, this year to commission uh, Heather Hoffel. Have you ever heard of her? Do you know Heather? Yeah. Um, I don't know her, but I've heard of her. She's out in, I think, Indiana. She's a, a, either an elementary or middle school band director herself, writes a lot of really fun pieces. Um, I think she's written at all levels, but I especially like some of the stuff she's done for young bands. So she's written a piece for our bands um, that we're going to premiere this this May. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy that we're getting back to doing, um, you know, music of other people published. But but I'll tell you, um, getting through the pandemic, um, my own ability to write for my students was super helpful. And then um, honestly, kids like to see that their band director's name in the top right corner. So as part of my composing and arranging for school bands class, I always tell people, even if you're not interested in getting published give it a try write for your kids they'll love the fact that you wrote for them and um but anyway so I, I think my district has probably and this is not an exaggeration if i know what i charge for a commission my district is probably gotten into the tens of thousands of dollars of free music from me over the decades that i've been teaching for them so just that alone i think is part of it um, my interest in technology um i was the person who went to the school board and got everybody uh, midi workstations back in the day and um, and I still am the person that says, hey, it's time to update Finale or it's time to get this or um, that, so even though I'm not a 
a technology employee of the Park and School District, a lot of our tech powers and tech coordinators call me and I'm happy to, you know, I'm, I'm a team player and the, and the district certainly done a lot of good stuff for me. So um, I think there's a lot of ways that when you develop expertise in different areas um, outside of school, it, it, it comes back in all sorts of ways that maybe are hard to quantify, maybe ways you don't even see at first, you know? Like when I went for a composition degree, I was thinking I was gonna be writing a lot of music that was not school music, you know? But so, but in the end, um, I, I think it's never a waste of time to improve yourself and to, um, and to, and to do service and things like that uh, with your skills. Uh, because you teach so many summer classes and you're teaching teachers, yeah. um, do you ever uh, draw some reflections on uh, whether how your elementary teaching either um, uh, affects your adult teaching or how your adult teaching affects your your, your elementary teaching. Any any? Uh, yeah, so that's a good question. I, I think that um, you know Tom Tom Rudolph's doctorate is actually in it's from Widener University. I remember him telling me, and it isn't in music. It's in um, it's in adult education. There's a whole there's a name for that, and I forget what the field is. But when you teach adults, it's like a, a it's its own unique field. And he knew he was going to be doing a lot of you know um, teacher training, grad classes, PD workshops. Um, and I remember him telling me like uh, he said, for instance, here's the the attention span of a of a middle schooler or a high schooler, and here's the attention span of an adult like in their 40s. And it was like almost nothing. <laughs> like, so if you're if you're 40 years old and you're raising a family and you have things on your mind. Uh, uh, you better get it out there in the first, you know, like two or three minutes or, or it's a waste, you know, that kind of thing. Whereas undergraduates are a lot more indulgent of professors who wax rhapsodic. So, um, but, but I, I don't know. Um, I, I think that the biggest thing uh, that I'm an in-service K to 12 teacher um, is that when I'm teaching, um, especially grad classes, those teachers know that, that I do it all day long and I, and I, and I've done it for, for between three and four decades um, so I'm not just a poser, right? I'm actually doing it. And um, I, I will say it's really interesting that because I teach some undergraduate music ed classes and I teach some graduate music and the undergraduates, I don't think they know, you know, it doesn't matter to them that I'm, that I have all that experience and that they're, they're benefiting it from because, because they haven't been out there and they don't get it. Um, but boy, I see the light bulb, you know, that, that theoretical light bulb that goes off above somebody's head when they're like, Hey, that's a great idea. When I'm teaching grad classes, I see the light bulb a lot because those are people who are doing it every day and they understand when you're telling them something that can really be useful. Undergraduate students, as cool as they are and as optimistic and hopeful, and it's all, it's all great to, to get their energy and everything. But when you tell them like a total home run, like great idea it, to use in a classroom, a lot of times they're like, okay. <laughs> you know, like, they, don't, they don't see like, that is an awesome idea. You know, like, uh, thanks for sharing that, Scott, you know, uh, because they're not out there. Yeah, I, I know exactly what you're saying. And Jenny and I are very fortunate that our our student teachers and our uh, certification program are graduate students. Right. Even if they are just a year or two out of undergrad, um, mm -hmm. they are at a different level of thinking and taking things. Um, they're really focusing all on music education at that point. And I'm not thinking about any senior recitals or any right. other classes or ensembles or um, turbulent and, boyfriend yeah. relationships or, you know. Yeah. And the other thing Jenny and I always talk about is the having been in the classroom over 25 years, each of us, um, mm -hmm. high school and middle school levels that we we bring that to our students each and every day. Yeah, I know uh, both my kids went to Westchester University as undergrads and some of their favorite teachers were, were people like Andy Yozviak who had been 
um, in the K to 12 realm for, for more than just a couple you know, token years, but really had done it. Um, and they had they were lucky to have a couple professors like that. And I'm not saying because, um, you know, Ken Laudermuck, for instance, is probably the most important person in my life. He was the, the wind ensemble director at Westchester before Andy, and he was the trumpet professor there. And I think he only taught, you know, one or two or three years. He was a fantastic teacher. He was just a naturally gifted teacher. So I'm not saying that somebody who doesn't have a lot of K to 12 can't be a totally awesome university professor. But I, I do know that that Ben and Abby, my, my son and my daughter, um, who are both music teachers, uh, really uh, recognized when they were with somebody who had that experience and, and how fortunate they were to, to be able to you know benefit from that. So what advice do you have for our listeners who might be considering exploring new interests um, or in, inspired passions? And aren't sure whether they should or how to begin. You have any yeah. advice um, or recommendations? We, we could talk for the next hour on this statement, I'm going to say, and it's just simply to take some chances. If you want to do something, a lot of times you have to sort of make your own opportunities. And um, even though you don't see how it's going to possibly, like I remember when I decided to go back for my doctorate, um, I literally did not get out of school. school. The school day didn't end early enough for me to get to Temple to take the 415 uh, grad classes that were mostly offered in my program. Um, so I just applied, you know, I got accepted. Um, I went to my principal and said, hey, I'd really like to do this. And luckily I had a very enlightened principal who said, Scott, just leave 15 minutes early, you'll make it. You know, yeah. And, 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 and that kind of thing happened all the time where I didn't see how it was gonna be possible for something to happen. Kind of like the Jim Frankel story. You know, he spent a lot of his own money but boy, has that paid over like hundredfold in, in the terms of, you know, um, he's in he's in the high echelon of these really cool things now because he was willing to take a chance and and make an investment um, in himself. So I would say that's that's the big thing is just, you know, I told you when I when I first got published, um, John O'Reilly was the editor at at uh, um, at Alfred and I had created a website. This is back in 1998 called Home Practice Online. And I put up accompaniment tracks online of all the music that my students were doing and anything I wrote, I'd put up there for free, PDFs and accompaniment tracks. So here are dozens of directors that I didn't even know and some, some that I did know were downloading these pieces I was writing for free and telling me how much they liked it. So when I met John O'Reilly and we went out to lunch one time, um, we had him in for a PD workshop and I took him out to lunch. Um, it turned out that um, his background was kind of like mine. He had been a band director and done some adjunct teaching and um, um, John Kenyon sort of took him aside and sort of got him into the publishing world. So anyway, he said, if you ever want to send me one of your, one of these pieces you're talking about that, that people seem to like, send it to me, I'll take a look at it. So I sent him a piece called Walkin' Cool. And um, it, was, it was a grade one piece that my kids loved that every single band director that did it said, I love this piece, Scott. Uh, thanks for sharing it, you know, that kind of thing. So, and I was just giving it away for free. So that's me taking a chance. I created that website. You know, I learned HTML because back then they didn't have, you know, website creators like, like they have now. So I had to learn HTML, program a website, put it up there. So I'm spending a ton of my own time, but, but learning some very valuable things and then sharing my music, getting some feedback. Um, so anyway... John uh, sends me uh, an email telling me that his editorial committee at Alfred rejected the piece. They didn't. They they thought it was too much like some other things they had in their catalog, and uh, but they invited me to send some other stuff. So here's the the thing that the chance though the the risk taking. I didn't know John that well, but I looked up his uh, contact information and I called him on the phone in Los Angeles, <laughs> and I said, John, I could you please take another look at this piece? I'm telling you, it is a winner. Everybody who does this piece loves it. And, you know, I'm normally not that 
prideful about my own music. Uh, my wife sort of has to push me into being that way. <laughs> but uh, believe in yourself, Scott, you know, uh, nobody else will if you don't, that kind of thing. So anyway, I, I got him on the phone. I think he just felt guilty and it was awkward for him to say no on the phone. So he said, all right, I'll take it back to the editor editorial committee. We'll take another look at it. So anyway, um, he called me back um, a couple of days later and said, you know, we are going to take it. We'll, we'll, we'll put it in this year. We have one more slot. We'll, we'll put it in there, see how it does. It was their bestseller that year. Awesome. Wow. So, what a story. Yeah. So I think take a chance and, yeah. and uh, take the leap. You know, that's what I'd do if I was these people. When I was thinking about that, asking you that question, and I was thinking about it myself and thinking about my own life, um, I realized almost every opportunity was because of somebody who was there for me, right? It was a, was a mentor, um, helped me out along the way. And I just wanted to see, maybe we could just say something about mentors. How, oh, yeah. How important it is for everybody to have mentors, right? Right. And the take a chance thing isn't the only thing. It's not, you're not in a vacuum. And, and I definitely have had the road paved for me by people. Like I mentioned, Ken Laudermilk, you know, he gave me my first significant. So I, I had a, a couple little commissions, like somebody pay me 500 bucks to write this or that, or, you know, little things or, or a lot of us call a commission, just somebody asked you to write something. Right. But, but Ken gave me a substantial commission to write a piece for the Westchester University Wind Ensemble when I wasn't published and when I only had a couple um, uh, performances um, of significant stuff. And uh, it's, it's actually this piece here, um, Aesop's Fables. And I love this piece. I, I was glad, anytime ask, anybody asks me like, uh, what's a piece that I can listen to to get to know your music? I always tell them, listen to Aesop's Fables. There's this piece that Ken and the, the Westchester University Wind Ensemble uh, commissioned me to write. So people like that um, who've taken a chance on me, you know, <laughs> rather than me taking a chance on myself or um, like you mentioned, uh, people who just um, are willing to, like when I first started doing guest conducting, I took Ken out to breakfast and said, Ken, you know, you did all these district band festivals and stuff like that. Uh, can you can you give me some of your best tricks to do when I'm when I'm doing a one or two day festival? And you know what he said to me? He said, Scott, they probably didn't ask you because you're a good conductor because you're probably not that great a conductor. <laughs> he, said, he said, they asked you because they like your music because you're a composer. So just talk about your music, tell stories about your music, um, do things that shape the sound of your music it, 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 if it's you know something that you're you're happy with uh because it's the piece that they're performing of yours they'll be happy with. and it turned out he was right um i i think i'm an i'm a okay conductor but i i know i'm not the you know i'm not a peter boonshaft or a keith hodgson i but okay. but, but, but you, people have <laughs> but you're gen because but his his advice uh it was going to make you look genuine yeah. You, were, you were going to be very genuine in, in what yeah. you do, so. But I appreciate that. And you're right, mentors and the people who've helped us along the way, um, you know, is another big part. And, and I think everybody at every stage um, should have somebody like that. Um, even now, I have composer friends of mine that I ask them to kind of give me some um, feedback on how I'm Like Robert Shell, Bob um, has, has helped my writing uh, improve. So even though I'm pushing 60 years old, right, I still feel like um, I need those mentors to kind of um, help, help me uh, refine myself. It's part of the lifelong learning that's so important. Well, Scott, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and experiences, expertise with our audience. Um, I personally want to thank you for all you do each and every day for, for your students. And to all my music educator friends, please continue to find opportunities to open your doors to all students to engage with music and with you. Thank you to Zesowitz Music and CEO Randy Shaler for your continued support for music education. And we'll see you next time on the next episode. Thanks, Bye -bye. Scott. Thanks, Scott.